So hi, everybody, and welcome to another Meet the Author. We've got a great guest uh, with us today, Jason, and he's going to be talking about his book, The Practical Guide to the Safety Professional. And before we get started, I did also want to let you know that um, our sponsor, Safepedia, is going to be doing a workshop in July, and I'm going to drop the link for that into the chat. And Jason is also on his own podcast and stuff. And so I'm going to ask Jason if you can drop your link into that into the chat for that as well. And I'm going to drop the link for your book into the chat also. So let's kick it off. And I'm going to hand it over to you, Gary, to start us off. Thank you, Tamara. And uh, welcome, everybody, on our Meet the Author for June. As Tamara says, we have Jason Maldonado here. Um, as you know, our format is that we don't go into a deep dive. And so Jason, tell us about your life because that could take up 59 minutes. So what we do is that we kind of plunge right into it. And my first question is, Jason, so this is a practical guide. What right. made you decide to write this practical guide? Well, there was a bunch of stuff, but the, the real crux of it, when I really started getting into, and this is past the... Uh, the point where it was sort of the tipping of the scales and I decided to, to go for it and, and actually pull the trigger and do something uh, rather than just say I wanted to write a book for the rest of my life. But um, one of the things that I really wanted to do is I was, you know, I've read many, many safety books over my career, um, enjoyed many, many of them. Uh, but at the same time, I've, I've kind of looked objectively and went, nobody else would ever want to read this outside of, you know, our, our, our profession. Um, so my goal was really to write something that was a little bit along the lines of a, of a novel, but in a way that, that portrayed lessons that I've learned uh, throughout my career that, you know, would be helpful to somebody that maybe hasn't, uh, or that didn't have that mentorship or that, uh, that guidance at that point in their life. So uh, I wanted to kind of make it meaningful. That was really the, the crux behind it was like, how, is there a book out there that sort of bridges the gap between theoretical um, academia type stuff and boots on the ground work? And really, I hadn't ever seen anything like that before. So I wanted something that kind of bridged that gap and spoke in everyday English and told stories and, you know, kind of didn't take itself too seriously. But at the end of the day, you have uh, some really solid things to take away from it. So that was that was the goal. It was a lofty one. But, uh, you know, having Having seen this thing around for the last couple of years, I feel like, you know, it was definitely a well a worthwhile endeavor. So yeah, I'm happy with the way it turned out for sure. But I'm always interested in how you pick the words for your title, like the word relentless. Is there any um, background to why? How did you come around? Yeah, there was. So when I was, uh, I, I don't remember the, the relentless per se, that part of it, but I, when I was in, in the thick of writing before I really even had a, a purpose or a direction or had even, even put anything really together in any kind of cohesive format, um, I was listening to a book on tape by a guy named David Goggins, and he's an ex-Navy SEAL, you know, elite athlete. You've probably seen him on all the motivational talks, and um, just now he's like an ultra marathon runner and wildland fire firefighter, just one of those ultra, you know, pinnacle guys at everything that he that he does. But he had written this book about his struggle in becoming a, a Navy SEAL. And he was, you know, talking about it earlier in his life when he was, you know, weighed 350 pounds and was in terrible shape and, and the recruiters laughed at him and told him that he wasn't going to do this. And, and just that, that mental tenacity that he had to keep going. Well, anyway, I'm, I'm listening to this book and at the end of every chapter, 
he had uh, a challenge and it was something, I think the first chapter was like, create your accountability mirror. And it was just a simple idea of looking in the mirror every day and holding yourself accountable to whatever your goal was for that day. So he would write it in Sharpie on the wall or not Sharpie, but you know, dry erase on the, on the mirror or whatever. And uh, at at the end of each chapter in this book, they had a challenge and I think they called it the, the can't hurt me challenge or something. And they had this little hashtag at the end. They said, share your stories with us. So my big lofty thought was, well, what if this book had a had a hashtag and the whole safety community, all five of us um, out there, get together and band behind this hashtag and, and tell our stories. So that was the idea. Um, I can't say that it actually worked really well, but um, you know, I wanted the idea was like something that you just got to keep pushing, keep doing, and um, and really follow through. And that was the I guess that's the crux of the relentless. But the idea of relentless safety, the hashtag uh, was at the end of, of most of the chapters. There's a tool in this book that you can use and apply on your job site and, and uh, share your experiences. So if you ever do feel inclined to post something on, on LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook, or whatever, to use the hashtag, hashtag relentless safety. That's what cool. it was. That's cool. Great. Well, this guide is um, divided into three parts. Can you kind of briefly describe what you cover in each part? Yeah, so the uh, the, the book is, is split into three parts and it's really supposed to be, um, the, the first part is the setup. You know, it's, it's trying to describe, and for me, it was really a point of frustration, like huge frustration in my career. I was working for a horrendously toxic company, um, stuck in a contract deal that I couldn't get out of uh, tomorrow. And I've had many conversations about uh, about that. It's a personal thing, so I'm not going to get into it. But um, I was just really frustrated with the way that this this company and a lot that I had worked with, consulted with in the past and, and just seen do business um, of all the positive things on one side, there's this negative connotation, this negative con- context that comes with um, with the safety profession, right? Um, so I wanted to set up the book by first detailing what I thought are some of the biggest pitfalls of the way that we conduct our business and the things that separate us from the people that we say that we're supposed to be supporting, you know, the workers. So I wanted to, to kind of lay out the groundwork there and show some just outrageously ridiculous stories that even my proofreaders, as I was doing the research for this and going back and, and uh, talking to people that were involved in the real stories and making sure that I got the facts straight. Uh, I even had a couple of my buddy read it and went, there's no way this happened in real life. You know, <laughs> it's just too, you're not that cool for one. Um, when she was absolutely correct about, it, I was just in the right place at the right time. Um, but that was the the setup for the first part of the book. And then as I as I was writing that, that was the very beginning of it. It was sort of this rant about everything that I thought was wrong with safety and admittedly a little bit judgmental. And a lot of it is my opinion. So you can take it for what it's worth. But I, I got to about three chapters of that and went, this is fun and therapeutic and cathartic and all that other stuff, but it's not really useful to anybody that, that wants to pick this up. Like I may get a bunch, a bunch of head nods and, and other people who think alike in agreement with me, but that doesn't really further the cause, right? So uh, the second chapter, the second part is really the, the bulk of the book. And that's where I built the stupid simple toolbox. And uh, that idea, again, came from the, the David Goggins challenge at the end of each chapter. But really what I wanted to do there, and there's 11 chapters in that section, is build a, a sort of um, bundle of um, tools that you can sort of stack and build upon. So you started the very bare bones, basic philosophical idea of 
like, let's get out there and get going and start doing something all the way up until, you know, here's how you communicate better. Here's how you write better. Here's how you build a program that doesn't rely on rules versus, um, you know, motivating people to do the right thing because it'll keep them safe. Uh, so that's the second part. And then the third part really wraps it up and, and takes all the story elements and kind of puts them in a, in a bundle. So it takes all those tools. It takes all the observations from the first part and, and kind of gives you a really quick down and dirty example of what this could look like if you, you know, implemented all this stuff in your organization. So um, the last part is really a, a, a very, very quick case study of a, a program that I ran uh, going probably 15 years ago now where um, we really dug into what is uh, – what is out there that's going to harm people on, and this was a construction site at the time, what's going to actively harm people and what should we do? What are we actively doing? Um, you know, the numbers and the counts and the, the audits and citations and all that stuff are great data points, but what are we doing about those things? So that's what matters. And that's what, that, that's what really gets you to that next level. So that's the, the three parts in a nutshell. Cool. Right. So, there's a, there's something you say in chapter three, and I just want to also open this up to everybody that's on the call. You say there's that statement that says all accidents that or that accident was preventable, right? So has anybody heard that or dealt with that? Um, I'd like to hear your take when you hear that. What's, what's your response? First of all, we'll start off with Jason, then let's open up to others. Um, how do you respond if somebody says that accident was preventable? Uh, it's an incomplete sentence. That accident was preventable until it happened, uh, right? The, the the idea that, and I get where it comes from. Um, I, I think it came initially. It came from a from a, I'll say, righteous point, where you know we don't want people to get hurt. We don't we don't ever want that thing to happen again. And that is a good motivator. But to go back in time and look at it in that sense, you're essentially telling the the worker that they were too stupid to avoid what happened to them. Um, regardless of if that's what you meant, right? Uh, the the way that people take things and the way that people absorb it is, especially when they're sitting there with you know a bloody mouth full of missing teeth or something, for example. Um, you know, it's just not going to go over well. And I just I just don't think it serves us to get into that debate about whether it was or wasn't preventable, because in reality, it wasn't if it happened. Um, now that doesn't preclude us from going and and doing the work to prevent or work on preventing things, similar things in the future. But I think we need to take the emphasis off of what happened yesterday and the person that it happened to and all those things, because it, it really uh, detracts from what our ultimate goal is. If I could just tap in here for a second, because I, I agree with what you're saying, Jason, and, and somebody who's been in a just really actually a minor accident, um, as a deli worker, I sliced my thumb down to the bone. And, and absolutely, like after it happened, I could even see myself when that moment of the accident happened. Yeah. And so how can people do safety a little bit differently so that they're leveraging it as an opportunity to learn about what type of things could be fine-tuned? Was there a moment that it could have been prevented or was this really, and, and I, I even have a struggle with the word accident because a true accident mm -hmm. is something that you can't foresee, it occurs. That's why it's an accident. 
in comparison incident where it's something that has occurred, however, it could have been predicted and steered away from at a certain moment of time. Um, Darren Sutton talks about the, um, the storm, right? And so that there, when certain incidents all will happen in a flurry, and it's during that flurry that you can either um, take a pivot and avoid, or you may not, and you, you might actually go into um, something occurring, right? So from your experience, how can we help navigate when you're in that storm phase of things happening? I think if you're in the storm trying to plan out your battle plan, you're too late, right? The, the idea that, that we're going to get it right when our adrenaline's high, when our emotions are high, um, when we're not thinking rationally, it's, it's a losing battle. And I think that's where we sort of, I, I, I think that's where we're misdirected in looking so heavily at incidents, because if you look at, and, and I don't have data to like prove this definitively, but if you look at, you know, an, a, an organization and you look at their, their incidents rates, most of the time, unless it's a really high um, impact or, you know, high severity injury industry, most of the time their, their in injury rates are not statistically significant right they're they're not we're looking at things like cuts and scrapes and bumps and bruises maybe some broken bones maybe some worse strains that that required some some lost time none of those things are good i'm not saying that that's okay to have um but when you look at the the reality of it that's not what happens most of the time on most days so i think we're fighting a losing battle by trying to like identify what it was that went wrong in this one scenario because in actuality the the conditions the the storm is never going to be exactly the same again so we might hit the nail on the head we might get lucky but it's just about as as you know strategic as buying a lottery ticket um where we and this is where i tried to go in the in the book is that where if, if you really approach the the planning and the coaching and the talking and the being a human and communicating better from the onset then you have a pretty good idea of what you should be expecting and that will give you an idea of when you should stop because you know that, you know, hey, we don't, we're sh this shouldn't be going on right now um, versus the other way when you just grab your tools and go get it. Um, you're just kind of facing what comes right and, uh, versus having sort of a, like you said, a, like a predetermined or pre uh, predetermined idea of sketch of what should happen. Now, I see that, that Michael has put, yeah, I didn't want to lead you, which is why my, my question was so convoluted, because I was trying to not to lead the discussion. But yeah, exactly. Now, Michael, you, you put a comment in, in the um, chat. Did you want to come on, Mike, and discuss that a little bit? Uh, sure. So I'm a, a student of HOP, and um been doing the environmental safety health manager for 20 plus years. Uh, and when I hear all accidents are preventable, the first thing I go to is sure. Yep. I agree. But the way we do that is building the capacity to fail safe into the system. I'm also a process safety guy. So when things happen, I'm always looking for where was the hole in our process that allowed that to happen? Where did we allow, you know, either a human decision or a mechanical failure to, when it happens, cause the injury? 
Um, so it, it, that's just my point. I think that's what I work for every day is just to build that capacity further. And the unfortunate part is if it works, you'll never know. It's hard to prove. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, Gord, the, the paradox. Gord, yeah, open up your mic. Hey, thanks. Yeah, I always concur with what Jason was uh, eloquently given as an explanation there. And Michael backed up. I come from a high risk injury, uh, a high risk uh, environment, uh, worked in oil and gas and now offshore wind farms. And I think, you know, when you look at the context of how um, those high performance teams are working and yeah, sometimes it does go wrong. But when you look at the tools that are in the toolbox in those sort of environments, like consideration for the whole system and that's people not just the mechanics um the drills exercises uh, the the competency levels that people work at due to extensive training that they're all helping towards that aim and of course you've got to be trained and operate efficiently efficiently as a as an organization acting in one uh, because you know that your life and uh, your colleagues lives depend on it so it gives that sort of heightened awareness. But some of the things in, in our industry uh, that, that have been talked about is sometimes when it's like Michael was alluding to, I, I believe, that when everything's going fine and great, you know, that's the, the point where you've got to think to yourself, why is it going? If you've had no LTIs, you know, there's been a long duration. Why is that? So sometimes I think the, the, the safety uh, the safety guy is... Uh, in some instances, being uh, proactively looking uh, reactively to some things, whereas the people in those sort of industries are actually looking over their shoulder and they're thinking all the time, what, why has nothing happened yet? And that extra vigilance, I think, uh, goes a long way. I'm, I'm not denigrating factory workers, retail workers, you know, uh, or anything like that. It's just that because you have that heightened awareness it's the same in the military where my previous career was as well, that, you know, your body, you're looking after yourself, but you're looking after your buddy next to you. And that is so ingrained that, you know, the minute you wake up, that's your mindset. Maybe it's not great. People that work in retails and factories are probably have a, have a, have a proper real life <laughs> as opposed to us guys. But if you want to go home at the end of the day uh, in an industry like that, you have to have that mindset and you have to live it and breathe it. And I think that's part of the relentless uh, yeah. that, that's embedded in your title, that if you want to be doing good and you have to excel all the time and you want to go home, uh, you have to be relentless. And that's not just in the professional, the specialization that you've got uh, in your industry. It, it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you're not going to win with posters and barriers and that day in, day out. It, it's got to be a mindset. Yeah, for sure. I've seen the difference. Like I've worked in manufacturing um, and then I've worked in some high reliability, some, you know, the nuke industry and, and stuff like that. And you're, you're right. It's night and day. Like it's just that I think for me, the, the learning there is, is that, you know, our, our hair isn't on fire in, in the high reliability industries, right? We're, we're, we're looking at things, uh, objectively more so i think than than in manufacturing where it's got to go it's got to go it's go to you know conveyor breaks and now we're going to lose fifty thousand dollars an hour whatever it is um it's just so, so much different motivators i think and that's that's a big challenge depending on the industry you're in for sure yeah 
Tanya, you raised a good point in the chat about we're so outcome focused. Can you expand on that? Well, just, just listening to some of this, I mean, what, you know, how are we even defining success? What does success look like? I mean, are we, are we looking at low LTIs to, to measure success? Like, is that, is that really what we're after? Because we know there's enough science around to be able to show that a lot of these metrics can be gained if you let them, right? You don't, if you want a low LTI, you'll get a low LTI. That's, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that that's what's happening. And right. It doesn't mean you're safe. Yeah. And I think if we can, you know, that I, I, I absolutely love the idea of embracing the red and challenging the green. I have been told that this concept is cryptic and that I have to make it more amenable outside of the safety field. But if we can, if we can start appreciating, like, well, just to put a, a, another um, piece of evidence in, most accident reports, most inquiries have the faint echoes of somebody saying, I knew this was gonna happen. I, to I, I told you so. So if that's true, then why weren't yeah. they listened to? You know, um, we have to start looking at normal work. We have to start just appreciating what's going on in the everyday and not be so yep. fixated on the outcome of things. I think we'll get so much richer information if we can start really appreciating the complexities of normal work and, and listening to people. That are that are engaged in that work. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I so I think what you I, just I totally addressed, Tanya, is is maybe and tell me if I'm right or wrong, Jason. In your part one, chapter two, you talked about figuring out the difference between what truly matters and what is a waste of time. Yeah. So what have you learned that yeah. you can share? And maybe maybe it touches upon what Tanya just said as well. It's it's very very close to to what Tanya just said, um, and and that is is the point that you know when we're traditionally, and I blame this is this is where I, I get a little cynical, but I blame us as safety practitioners for for doing this to ourselves. Like you said, Tanya, like the if you want to judge versus you know based on the LTI rate or a recordable rate, you can't. And the problem is that everybody does, and and we've perpetuated this idea that that's the the measure that somehow equates to to uh, excellence and it doesn't we know that there's no correlation between an accident rate just like you said Danny, you can game that all day long i've done it i've gotten good at at gaming the system in parts of my career just to you know it's it, not something that i want to ever go back and do again uh, but it's it's very much a part of the trade uh and i think it's just it's so misdirected because it just doesn't, it doesn't get us, like I said, the, the scenarios are never going to line up again. Um, you know, my, my current employer, we had an, an issue, really, really minor in, injury. Um, a guy was shocked, um, <clears throat> got like a little static shock on the back of his glove. But the, you know, in, in our industry, in the tech industry, it's, that's not a common occurrence. And we wanted to figure out what it was. Um, so in case we have, you know, the, the a really interesting thing to me is that, you know, this is, again, this wasn't a common occurrence and, you know, it was pretty, pretty low, um, uh, low hazard industry for the most part. And, 
the management just went to the roof. You know, they, they heard this thing happen. Oh my God. How did they, you know? And so I kind of had to, you got to do it tactfully, but you got to go back and, and go, look, we replaced like, let's say the server boxes, we replace, you know, 5,000 of them a day, you know, in, in 5,000 different data centers or, you know, I'm just making numbers up, but it's an astronomical amount that we touch this stuff and we do this stuff. And one guy in one place got shocked, right? That's not a trend. <laughs> and it doesn't, it isn't going to do us a whole lot of good to try to figure out nicely. And we figured out very, you know, pretty, pretty concretely what, what happened, which was good. You know, it was an equipment issue. Um, but chances are, it's never, ever going to happen in that, in that chain of events again, you know, so, so to go to try to prevent it is, is a losing battle from the get go. You know, we, we learned the lesson, we moved on, but then you have to look at it objectively and go, yeah, that wasn't a really big occurrence. It wasn't a good occurrence. Um, but the outcome doesn't dictate how, how probable it is or, you know, or not, you know, and, and we get so spun up, spun up. And I think the one question that I was started to ask leaders now more, more so, uh, and you got to figure out how you can, you can navigate these waters which is to go up and say, Hey, why is that important to you? And why are you upset about our recordable rate? Why, you know, think about it. And a lot of times they don't have an answer for it. It's just something that they've been trained to do. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've had shared some of those similar experiences, uh, particularly if there is an accident involved, it gets involved with um, the workers' compensation, the regulators. Next thing you know, they've created this rule that comes down the organization, everybody has to kind of take the, um, the whitewashing training. And then you're right, the question is, that was an incident one time, maybe, never again. Yeah. But we put so much emphasis in, and it creates so many constraints and restrictions, how we worked practically in the field, but we don't think it through. And then 10 years later, when you try to explain, why do we have, why do we have to wear these gloves? Oh, I think it happened because somebody got hurt 10 years ago. We don't go back actually and maybe clean up some of the things that have never occurred again. Good point. Now I do see Peter has his hand raised. Did you want to unmic yourself, Peter? Hi, how are you? Good. Hi, Peter. Uh, yeah, I just want to talk. It's funny that uh, I think Jason, you brought it up when you, you talk about uh, you ask your manager or whoever the plant manager you know, why it's important to you. Well, you know, I found over time that, you know, sometimes they don't even know. They're not even sure why, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like, they're looking at the same as we're talking about the LTI or, you know, are we getting a rebate back or stuff like that too? They're, they're focused really on the wrong things, Right. And then I found over time in my experience, like you almost got to coach these guys and hold their hand, you know, and, if they haven't been safety conscious or even environmentally conscious or whatever, you know, like you've really got to drag them along and teach them. I mean, you know, those guys making all the decisions, but really they're not sure what the decisions are at times, I think. Right. So I've always found that kind of uh, yeah. an interesting component of the whole, uh, the whole job, you know, function and everything else. Right. So yeah, anyhow, there's my point. Oh, for sure. Good. Thank you. So I wanted to, I, to, um, Tanya put in the chat about severity, um, like kindred spirits here today. But yeah, so the, the third part of the book is actually an argument for, I don't know, I mean, it, it's not like a debate or anything, but it's a, uh, it's my, my attempt at an argument for using severity to track uh, incidents rather than, than outcomes. Uh, and I came up with a, a little ranking system. 
but uh, that I, that's something that I've been trying to do forever is try to get a, a better way at looking at, um, at at what the actual impact of of an event was. Uh, I think we get a lot, we can get a lot more, and I still think that we shouldn't spend as much time as we do on those things. But if we look at it more from that perspective, of you know how much like to put it in, in, in perspective, like I will say I have an employee that uh, goes out and works with a wrench and he strains his wrist, right? Goes to the, decides to go to the clinic and, and the doctor looks at it and goes, oh, no, no big deal, put some ice on it. It's all well and good because that's a first aid injury versus maybe that doctor that he sees is a little more conservative and it's their prerogative, it's their business, it's their medical license, right? So they say, well, you know what? I want to put you in a splint. Well, now it's a recordable injury. Same injury, same action, same amount of required emphasis to be put on that. But now, because it's a recordable injury, we're going to spend 40 hours investigating it versus 40 minutes. Um, and, and I think that's just something that, that we really have to get away from. And it is hard because the, that's where the outside influence comes in, because that's when you get the, the attention from, you know, your VPs and your leaders and going, what are, what are you guys doing about this? You know, mm-hmm. so that education piece is, is key. Yeah. Yeah. Gord, go ahead. Yeah, I concur totally with that. And the last part that you mentioned, uh, the, the leaders at the top, I, I'm always... I'm not at the top by any stretch of the imagination, but supervising a vessel, <clears throat> I have to be careful the emphasis that I put on an event that happens because uh, the, the power in the tone of your voice or how you put it at a meeting, it can cascade down. And before you know it, the supervisor of the deck is then cascaded down to the, the HSE guy that's got, and everyone's then got to create a whole circus because they believe that to placate the guy at the top, They've got to generate all this uh, admin. They've got to do all, all these reviews. They've got to revisit all their paperwork. And this is t- tying up people for not necessary hours, but sometimes days. Um, so yeah, everything everything in context. And uh, I, I, I've, I'll feel for you over there. I'm sure we've all got uh, quite a few examples of how that can go uh, go the right way or, or the wrong way um, for that simple yeah, reason. For sure. You know, typically when I when I ask that question, um, all accidents um, or that accident was preventable, I often read that as the conclusion line of an accident investigation. And it always, you know, and 20 years ago or 30 years ago now, I guess, when I'd read these accident reports with my crews, we'd all go nod, 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 and then we'd go off to work. Then it started to bother me, like, why, why, do, why do we always go back to the rules that were in place? We always seem to evaluate and measure against the rules or practices that are in place at the time. And I didn't know it back then, as I know now, it's this term called counterfactuals. And that's mentioned in your book as well. We always seem, as Todd Coughlin says, we always seem to measure ourselves against the black line. And that's of course why the VPs and all the safety professionals, legal people get excited because that's where the fines are, because we didn't follow our own rules. But I think it's coming yeah. down to what you said, Tanya, about it's really following the blue line, that normal variability of the work. And that's where the learning comes, is, is how are we responding to a work variation during the day? And what are the folks having to do to prevent that sort of incident occurring? Forget about the black line. It's about the blue line that we need to really watch. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I, I've gotten into the habit, and especially I, I've been in my role now for about six months um, in my day job. And, you know, I, I the current company that I'm with is very safety focused and uh, the, the workers are more so than, than a lot of places that I've been genuinely interested, but also genuinely inexperienced as far as industry. And, you know, most of them are high school graduates and, and whatnot. So they just don't have their younger, uh, so they don't have that, that life experience. Um, the, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> you were, um, what were you talking about, Gary? Sorry about that. I had a point out. Oh, just talk it. about following the blue line as opposed to the black line. Oh yeah, no, the blue line. But but so uh, when I was going around meeting people, doing my meet and greets, um, you know, the recurring question, and I think it was one of those like stock standard questions that you had to ask in the exchange, was you know what what areas of safety uh, should I focus on, or you know what what do you think we could get better in, in our area in our crew or whatever, and the comeback that I would have to that is always what's annoying, you know, what's, what, what doesn't work the way that it's supposed to work or, you know, what process is so cumbersome that it's just like, ugh, I got to do that again. You know, that's what we need to focus on. That's where, that's where people are taking shortcuts. That's where, you know, if you have that hundred percent glove rule, we know that it doesn't actually work and that you can't do step 12 without taking the gloves off, you know, so we're just going to do that and not say anything. And that's where we, we really, that's, I think where that's where the undertones of I don't want to speak up come from. Um, you know, that's where you get that artificial pressure sometimes of, well, they want me to keep going and pushing and they being the bosses probably don't, but they haven't done anything to tell you otherwise in, in very explicit terms. Right. Really good. Really good. Okay. I'm just going to switch things on to another one of your um, simple, stupid tools that you've got. I found this one to be interesting. This is your tool about a basic writer's guide <laughs> designed to help any safety professional, a practitioner write better. So can you expand on this? So I, I actually want this, I, at, some, at some point I'm gonna turn this into a, its own material that, that it deserves because I think this deserves its own book. And I, I threw it in there as like an afterthought in, in, a, in the fourth chapter, I think was it? Um, or fifth maybe anyway the uh the idea behind the writing uh so i, I went to work at a uh, chemical uh, munitions demilitarization plant uh at one point and i started out my my tenure there i was there for almost three years um but i started out as the the plant uh technical safety writer and it was during the the end of construction so we were about ready to uh, to turn it over and do startup and, and whatnot and um and I was sitting in the office during this period writing procedures. So that entailed, you know, going out to the site, walking down the process and, and trying my best to, to go back and research it and then uh, figure out uh, how, to, how to put that into words. Well, we had a technical editing, a technical editor that was in charge. Of, she wasn't my boss, but she was in charge of the whole uh, building of the, the plant process. Right. And we, whenever there was a deadline, we would turn it into her for review. And I had, I had just finished, I think it was like a laser safety procedure, something that I'm not in particularly well-versed on, but I thought I did a pretty good job, you know, digging out of the research and, and finding, coming up with a, with a policy and a, a procedure for this thing. And it was just littered with shalls and shoulds and musts and legal words and, and you know, workers shall do this and OSHA says and thou shalt this and that, whatever. And I sent it to uh, Stacy, our technical editor, and she immediately sent it back to me and said, if you ever send me a document with the word shall in it again, I will 
trash it and you're going to start from the beginning and we don't write like that here um and i thought you know it was, uh, that's funny at first but she had some really solid reasoning for it first reasoning is that shall is a legal term um right so we're not we're not lawyers typically i know there are a few a few of us safety professionals who are but for the most part we're not and we shouldn't pretend to be um I think we need to learn how to communicate a little bit better and just more straightforward, right? The the other part of it is uh, her reasoning for not using the word shall, uh, aside from the fact that it's antiquated and, and people don't talk like that in modern day English, was that it is a statement of what you will do. And we were in the process of writing procedures of things that we are doing um, or the, the way that we do conduct business. And her point was, if you're going to, affirm that you're going to do something it's totally different than than acknowledging that this is how the process works today and every day uh it's kind of like a new year's resolution you can say it all day long but until until that's actually the way you work um until you actually burn the 30 pounds or whatever the the resolution is just a bunch of words and that's what her point was there um so we got into this really stripped down version of of writing that was just succinct to the point um you know rather than saying employees shall do this it was just hey, grab a screwdriver and turn it clockwise um, or whatever the instruction was. Uh, but that was the point. And, and I think we spend, somebody mentioned it earlier, um, talking about how we need to, I think it was Tanya saying, you know, how we need to translate our message more to, uh, to, to the workers and to the people that we're actually trying to, to help, right? Um, if we can't do that in our language, in our, in our policies and procedures, then we're dead in the water, you know, because that's like, that's like our bread and butter, right? And if it's just a big paperweight that sits on the desk, and most of them are, uh, then you're not going to, uh, you're not ever going to get any leverage out of them. You're not going to get any, and you're not going to get that learning and knowing, you know, how it actually works in, in real life. So that was, uh, and I, I kind of went off, off track, but the, the writer's guide in a nutshell is my version of how, uh, standards, procedures, and guidelines should be, um, should be structured. And the, the idea behind it, a standard is your company's interpretation of, you know, let's say an OSHA regulation, right? Um, so that's where you could put your legal words if you absolutely had to, because you were in love with them so much. But the standard is just saying, this is how we conduct business. This is what we, we strive to achieve. And then your procedure is going to tell you how that is accomplished. And then even further down the line, you break it down. Maybe there's a part in procedure or, or a, a, a piece of equipment that needs a, you know, a exploded view or, you know, illustrated parts breakdown or something like that. That's where you would use a guideline. So that's the writer's guide. Again, I think it deserves its own, its own material. There's a lot of stuff there. Um, but for, for a profession that does so much writing day in, day out in emails and reports and manuals and audits, and we're really, really crappy writers. So I think we need to get better at it. Yeah. Good point. <clears throat> My, my experience was um, doing the same thing as you, kind of writing policies and standards. And I had one really good friend, I was a critic, who says, Gary, you cover, you cover the why really well, you cover the what really well, but you don't say bugger all about the how. And if you want a practical guide, yeah. it's all about the how you know. So maybe <laughs> stop in the tracks and think about that. Oh, okay. You know, I, I, I've got a thing, but it's not sufficient. It's not complete. Yeah. 
for sure. And I think I said it, I either said it in the book or in one of my blog posts somewhere. I've said it many times, actually, but if, if all people need is for us to go and, and copy something out of OSHA.gov or whatever site and paste it into our company's letterhead, then they don't need us. You know, they, that's not the, the, the task. The task is exactly what you're talking about, Gary. It's taking that you have to do it and here's how now. And you can't get to the how. I can't get to the how. I'm not uh, uh, by sitting at my desk and and typing out what I think is the best way to do it. I have to actually go out there and watch and get with Gordon and be like, "Show me how you do this." And I'm gonna I'm gonna write it down as you do it, and then we're gonna check it together and go, oh, "Does this work?" You know, so that 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 is really how we conduct business, and we don't do that very often. Absolutely, good point. Learn from those who are doing. Peter, I see your hand up. Did you have something you wanted to contribute? Yes. Uh, so to the documentation thing. So I'm not sure how many uh, people are, you know, have the experience with the ISO standards. So I mean, in all the all my jobs, we had, you know, we had nine thousand, we had fourteen thousand, you know, we had twenty two thousand food safety and. You know, you start doing these audits and everything else. And to go back to what Jason was saying before, I found as time went on, you literally were getting rid of procedures or work instructions because you were there was so much, you know, uh, uh, duplication. And then, you know, they could have. So you, here was a perfect example. We just had a uh, uh, manufacturing guy. So there was a there was a procedure at the procedure level for the for the standard. Well, then they made a work instruction. Well. They were trying to say the same thing, but if you went to the work instruction, it was completely different. And I agree with Jason that you, you have to go out. So you'd look at the work instruction during an audit. You'd go out and go, well, that's not what you're doing. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, then you'd have to go, well, no, but this is the way we do it. I went, okay, so then you got to go back. You know, you got to go back and you change uh, our procedure. now. Change it. Well, no, but then. What happens is you end up getting, you have to go back to the manager or the supervisor and go, why'd you write this up like this? And when they get pissy at you, right? You know, it's typical. <laughs> so, you know, and go, well, you know what? I was just out there with your guy. So this isn't how it works. So, you know, do you want to rewrite this? You want me to rewrite it? You know, like, so that was all part of the nice part of, uh, you know, the health and safety guy being the worst guy in the whole plant, right? Because everybody hates you. Oh, yeah. So, you are. <laughs> You know, so the used car salesman of, of industry. Yeah, for sure. So, but I mean, you know, but I said it was like it was funny. There was so much duplication, and I think the ISO standards uh, that can it doesn't help at times. I don't think because people will want to write paper, right? And I always go under the old there's an old adage from you know from way back. I heard it from somebody. Paper doesn't refuse ink, right? So <laughs> you you write away and you write away and you write away, and you know. A lot of it just gets you more into trouble than it does anything else. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Really good point. Tanya and Gordon. Tanya, you wrote something in the chat, and then we'll tag Gordon in. Yeah. Well, I was just reflecting on something that I had heard Ivan Pukidli say. I uh, it must have been. I don't even remember when it was. It was years ago. Whereby. He was saying that, uh, you know, procedures, work instructions and so forth are excellent when you don't know what you're doing, when you're new yeah. and you need them. They are tools to help you learn how to do the job and, and they're useful for that community. 
but we have, when we say somebody is an expert, we judge them, we give them that label because they don't need those procedures. They know they, they've done that already. It's all internalized. They know how to mm. do the work without the procedures. That's, that's what we define as an expert, except when things go wrongly. And then, yep. especially if you're uh, pulled into a courtroom, especially if you're in the, in the medical profession, all that's the only thing that they care about is did you follow the standard was this the standard of care was this the you know the and it doesn't really matter how expert you were and so i mean all i'm advocating for is you know uh, on top of ivan's contribution way back when was that we need to start getting more professions into this discussion like legal you know, the lawyers and the judges need to start hearing this kind of talk so that they can appreciate their influence on on the workplace and how things are, are you know, how these things can go off the rails. Yeah. Good point. Okay, let me, um, I see you got about 20 minutes left. So let me um, introduce- Gary. Oh, Gary. sorry, go ahead, yeah, pardon me. Thanks. My mistake, go ahead, sorry about that. He has a question or something. Ezra, I, I was gonna lean back to um, Tanya when, you know, talking about the psychology as well. Uh, firstly, I have to apologize because I'm English and thanks to Shakespeare, we have a, a flowery, very wide range vocabulary. Uh, and those of us that are English, <laughs> try and use as much as we can in some of these policies, procedures and work <laughs> instructions, which doesn't always go well, like myself on a ship with a multinational um, crew. So although English is the maritime language, uh, when you've got like up to 20, 25 different nationalities, what we tend to do is uh, use, you know, the junior guy or whatever, give them uh, the first run of it and say, do you understand this? Is it written, uh, you know, when English isn't your first language, do you understand the point? And it's quite easy sometimes to write it. I mean, one of the old jokes going around is the uh, work instructions. Uh, there's a bilge pump or something and there's a hose coming out and they're discharging over the side. And the instruction says, don't forget the operator must keep one eye on the end of the hose. And of course, when the chief engineer comes out and the guy's actually got the end of the discharge hose on his eye, you know, you, you get the point. So clarity and like you said, Jason, as well, you know, being succinct, but it must be understandable. Yeah. So think of the end user as the whole psychology. What is it you're trying to achieve? Uh, write it so, yeah. uh, you know, from a base level, somebody can pick that up and it, and it actually, uh, uh, a, a goes to B and B goes to C and it all works and everyone's happy and they go home. If, if there's an error in it somewhere, then I there are ways of fixing that. And I, I'm guilty of this too, but I think we're so, we get so wrapped up in, you know, the, the push and pull of our different priorities, because on one hand, we're, we're there to protect the company. That's, that's part of what we do. I mean, admittedly, right. And then on the other hand, we're there to protect the, the workers. And sometimes there is a big conflict between those, those two things. And, you know, it's, I've found myself writing procedures, putting extra words in there as a CYA, you know, like, Oh yeah, well, this will keep us covered if something bad happens for exactly that same reason. But then, you know, that's the, that's the double-edged sword of it because that's what gets turned on the the worker or the employee when uh, when the bad thing happens so yeah cool okay so now let me kind of come in with uh change the topic and i'm going to choose a title from one of your chapters jason 
It's called Choose Your Enemies Wisely. What the heck is that all about? <laughs> we turned to that one. That was, uh, you remind me what chapter that was. That was what? 11, 12, oh, 10. Um, Oh, yeah, okay. So this one was, uh, sorry, I had to, I had to remember which, which one this was. Uh, this one was an issue where, it, and, and it's, it's tongue-in-cheek very much so, because the guy in the chapter is not, uh, and we call him Kelly in the book. Um, the, the guy in the book is not, was not an enemy. He was just one of those people that, that I didn't particularly agree with in a lot of things, but he was, it was a decent safety professional. Um, for all of that though, the issue that I, that I, I ran into, um, I was very, very much the junior in this, uh, at this project. And I, uh, I got a call one day from, from Kelly and he said, Hey man, I'm going on vacation. Would you mind handling my contracts when I'm out? I'm like, yeah, sure. No, no big deal. It was my kind of my opportunity to get out of the office and, and see stuff that I didn't typically do. I was more of like a data analyst at that point. And, um, uh, his main project was a, uh, a multi-level parking structure, uh, that we were building. I think it was, you know, seven or eight floors and we were on the third or fourth, something like that. And, um, as they would pour the foundations, they did these big monolithic pours for the, the foundations of each level. They did it in two sections. So those big, big parking garage, they do one half one, one night and then the other half the, the, the next night. And then in the meantime, you'd have to wait for everything to cure and, you know, get, get the right um, strengths and everything. And then they could remove all the false work underneath and, and, and that type of thing. So he took me out um, to the, the previous level that we had just finished where they were building up the false work, the structure underneath that would hold, um, that would hold the, uh, the forms for the new, new pour for the next level, if that makes sense. So he's taking me through there and, and this was just one of those, like, I'm just getting the lay of the land, kind of walking through and he starts showing me all these inspection points on this false work, you know, Hey, you need to make sure there's a nail here and you need to make sure there's a screw here. And these two things have to be bolted in this position. And I'm like, this is weird. This isn't what safety does, you know? And he's taking me through this like point by point inspection of this, this false work. So then we get to the end, we walk the whole floor and, uh, pulls his clipboard out and he's got this piece of paper and he goes, all right, when you get done inspecting it, you got to go through and sign this. And it was, a uh, um, a slot that basically we were signing off on the structural stability of, of this, this false work and, and stating that it was, it was structurally sound and we were, we were safe to pour. And I looked at that and went, Holy crap, I'm not signing that thing. <laughs> like, that's just like, do you want to go to jail? Um, Cause I have no, you know, and so I went back to my office and, and uh, he went off on his vacation. It was like the, the last day, right? He's trying to get out of the office early. I went back to the office and sat down with the boss. And it just so happened that our division manager was there from London as well. And I was like, guys, we, this, is, this is crazy. Like, am, am I wrong here? I'm not signing that thing. Like, there's just no way I'm putting my, my name on that, that piece of paper. Uh, and it became a whole big to-do. Um, but, but what we discovered was that Kelly, for all of his good intentions, uh, very, very much wanted to appease and placate and, and be the good guy, right? Um, so the idea was, uh, you, know, you know, really looking at your team objectively and knowing not necessarily who's, who's quote unquote a real enemy, but who's, who's an enemy maybe inadvertently to your goal um, or, or to your, uh, your purpose. And so what we did or what, what our boss did in response to this incident 
uh, was he he started what we called the safety table. And this kind of became the staple of uh, throughout the book. This is the, the four of us in, on this crew is really the, the main story that, that kind of weaves through this whole thing. Um, and our boss started the safety table and really very, very simple concept. All we would do is sit down at every day at 11 a.m. and go through our work. Um, you know, we had a guy named Tony, we had the boss, we had Kelly, we had me, and we would just all one, one through four, just go through, hey, I'm doing this, this, and this. And, you know, I've got a, uh, we've got a pour going on or we've got a crane pick going on or whatever it was, <clears throat> just so that we all knew what was happening and that anybody, um, that no decision could be made outside of that table. Or essentially, if we made a decision as the safety table, nothing could be changed uh, without coming back and and making sure that the rest of the group knew that. So it's really just about, um, you know, choose your enemies wisely is really about understanding who your allies are, what their capabilities and what their limitations are. Because sometimes even somebody like a Kelly, who, who for the most part was an ally, um, could inadvertently just through through some misplaced intentions, I'll say, um, create a whole lot of havoc, uh, that, that we don't need. So that's, that's kind of, I'd say that one borders more on the personal protection, you know, personal liability than anything else in the book. Um, but I think it was a really important point and a huge lesson for me because I've seen it time and time again, where, you know, just the basics of a, of a team dynamic, you have somebody who is, externally motivated by you know, pleasing others or advancing themselves or whatever their motivation is, people tend to make decisions that are not necessarily great for the group. You yeah, know. good point. Good point. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up team dynamics. We've had that conversation here a few times. Uh, Tanya, I see your hand up. Did you have something you wanted to add before we start uh, closing this out? Well, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Jason's story there because um, first off, uh, you know, he he kind of dampened the the enemy uh, label by saying, you know, well, maybe he had some misplaced intentions and things like this. So this is more of a compassionate with grace kind of approach to things. I just wanted to share that. Um, I wasn't that nice to him in the book. I'll just say that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but um uh, I was having a conversation with my brother-in-law recently. He works for a firefighters union. And he had said that when he first started working for the union, he, th this is what he said, you know, I thought that my enemies were going to be the volunteer fighter firefighters, but actually uh, my enemies are the, um, the paramedics. And he went on to give all of the evidence for this. And I thought, isn't that fascinating? He starts the conversation with who his enemies are. Mm. You know, this, that kind of mindset is not necessarily helping us get to a better place. If we can start, right. if we can get away from this understanding, oh, you, you hate that person too, then we have something in common. We really have to start breaking that kind of mindset. It's not helping. Yeah. If we can, you know, knowing who your allies are is fantastic, but maybe treating those with whom you don't share too many things more with compassion, more with, you know, maybe I don't understand their situation fully, that kind of thing, as opposed to just putting a label enemy mm -hmm. on them is going to get us to, to someplace better. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I think those are really valid points that it really, uh, uh, takes us to that world of diversity, 
and maybe looking at differences, but as opposed to like stick them in the corner and dichotomies, it's all about, oh, you have a different point of view. I need to understand that. Help me understand where you're coming from. Because that's how Tanya and everybody else, we're, we're going to get to both and if we do that, as opposed to either or, right? And, and we're so big on both and because that's where the real value is going to be in the future for us. Well, the last couple of minutes, um, I always end um, by asking the author, Jason, what would be your three takeaways that you would like to leave with the viewers? My three takeaways. Um, So the the first one is there's always words to take away, Uh, whether it's something in your writing, um, whether it's something in your, your email, your message, your safety meeting, whatever, we get so wordy and pedantic and prolific, whatever other adjective you want to use to describe the way we are, like just be a real person. I think one of the, the, the big motivators to me, and as I saw this thing sort of take shape, and granted it's been a couple of years now um, since it was published, but as I saw people kind of reacting to, to what I'd written, um, the one thing that really became apparent to me, especially when I got somebody who read it who wasn't in the safety profession, um, they they were like, "Wow, this is actually kind of interesting stuff," and and that was eye opening to me because it's, I, I think that we have done such a good job of digging into safety that we've sort of pulled ourselves out of reality and we don't necessarily necessarily relate to the rest of the workforce. And I think that that our communication, therefore our words. Um, is a huge uh, detractor in that that area because we just get so philosophical and you know kind of I don't know it's it, it can be kind of a, a turnoff but the the message the the material that we talk about and we get excited about ourselves amongst ourselves is actually interesting stuff to other people we just have to figure out how to break that barrier so that'd be the first one is you know watch your words always take away some there's always something that you can you can throw away you don't need to be uh the smartest sounding person in the world uh bye tanya <laughs> good to have you well, well let me share them with the, the, you when we talked about it because now yeah. they make sense to me because you talked a bit about the uh the book you read by the um, ex-Navy SEAL. Oh, yeah, yeah. At that time, you said, you know, look at yourself, question the status quo, and always push yourself. And I can see those are the messages that you got at the end of each of the chapter of that particular book. Yeah. Push yourself. So the one part of the story that I didn't tell, and I'll just tell it real quickly, is that the thing that sort of pushed me over the edge, um, I've been talking about writing stories for, for years and years and years. And the the book is dedicated to my mentor, who was the boss of this uh, crew of four that the, the guy Kelly was on. And uh, he passed away in 2016. So I was sitting on my dad's porch back in, I don't know, late 2018. And we were having a beer and just kind of re- reminiscing. And, uh, you know, it's kind of missing my old buddy and mentor um, who had actually stuck with me past, way past the project that we worked on together. And, uh, you know, he'd been my, my backup for years and years and years. And so I was missing him. And I'm uh, telling all these crazy stories that we had, you know, on this, on this one just insane project that, you know, that, that was really, you have to read it to believe it. Um, and my dad looked at me and he goes, man, these are great stories. You should write them down. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I should, it's, you know, I'll get to it one day, whatever. He goes, you're not getting younger. And you said you wanted to be a writer since you were like seven. So, um, I'll see you in two weeks. I would expect you could have about two chapters done by then. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was the thing that, uh, 
that pushed me over the edge. And um, so definitely push yourself. You know, it's it's one thing the the accomplishment of having done it. Now I look on my bookshelf and I see like I've written two books now, but um, one's a fiction book. But the you know I haven't sitting on your shelf is just it's almost surreal even now. And uh, and, and I don't think that I would have. Uh, well, actually, I I, I really. Uh, I'm very grateful for the lessons that it's taught me and the ability that it's given me to, to kind of solidify my thoughts and become a better professional. And if I can share that with others that, you know, they can grow and get something out of it, then, then even if one person does, I think that it was worth it. So. Okay. Well said. Well, it's the top of the hour. So Tamara, back over to you. This has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming and joining us today. I think, um, You've got a, you. given us a lot to think about. And I like your three takeaways, you know, always take away words. So don't make it uh, too complicated. Be real. Um, yeah. Question the status quo. I love that. People know that's my favorite. You know, there's always opportunity to to improve upon things and push yourself. That's kind of our our motto. That's how yeah. we actually met, actually was um, he and I were doing a podcast. It was the first time for both of us, basically. So, you know, get out of your comfort zone. So thank you. Did you have anything that you wanted to leave the audience with? Are you, do you have anything coming up or anything? I've got two, uh, two more books, the, the part two and three to the practical guide um, in the works. They're, I'd say, 80 to 90 percent done each, uh, but those will be a little bit, a little, little long coming. Uh, I've got some work to do to flesh out where, where they're going to go and who's going to publish them and those, those kind of things. But um, no, I, I would. Um, nice. Um, anyway. The, uh, the, what I did want to share, though, uh, the Safety Justice League podcast, which is my podcast, um, we talk about a lot of this kind of topic, and uh, yeah. that we've got an episode. We we publish episodes every Friday. Um, we had one come out this morning that was that was just awesome. Like, go listen to it. The guy that's on there, he's twenty seven year old entrepreneur. He's a he's a lawyer. He's a professor. He's a CEO. He's like the, the kid is insane. Um, but just some of the the crazy stuff that that they're doing in safety and tech is is pretty cool. Um, I did put the links to your book on Amazon and to Relentless uh, Safety, the website on there. I think you dropped the link for the safety podcast, the Safe, uh, Safety yeah. Justice League podcast. Can you do that one more time? I wasn't able to find that on my side. Sure. I thought it would be on your website, but it wasn't. Um, yeah, and we also have, um, Saferpedia has a workshop coming up in July, and I put the link for that there it's on corporate wellness. Well, Jer Gary, did you have anything you wanted to leave people with? No, I think we're kind of good. Looking forward to um, next month's and uh, we're just as a bit of a promo, we're gonna talk a bit about um, workplace violence. So hopefully people will tune into that and do, we'll do some extra shared learning. Okay, great. Well, thank you everybody for joining us and thank you, J Jason, for being our guest. This is awesome. Okay. Yeah. Thank Bye you for everybody. having me. It was an awesome Bye, time. everybody. Yep. See you. See ya.